you have to picture his little hazel eyes filling up with tears. My son Ace had heard me drive up and was standing in the doorway into the house from the garage. He was up a couple of steps and so he was nearly eye to eye with me. He had been in the backyard playing on my little portable hammock. It had come unhooked at one end of it and he thought that he had broken it. Now that broke his heart because he loved when I would go out and grill and then he would lay in the hammock with me. That's my little piece of paradise right there in my backyard. I'll fire up the wood pellet grill and sear the meat over the open flame and then put it on indirect heat and let the hickory smoke just season it to perfection. Who knows what I'm talking about? (laughs) And so while the meat smokes, I love to just lay in that hammock in the sun in the backyard when the sun's out and inevitably four kids and a Yorkie and sometimes my bride will all come just lay in that hammock with me. So far, I mean, it's a hammock built for one, but our record is, is four or five people and a Yorkie. That's our record so far. Well, Ace thought that he had broken it. And so he was waiting for me when I got there with big fat tears on his chubby little cheeks, just threatening to fall straight to the ground to confess what he had done wrong. He thought that he was in trouble. What he didn't know was that I was just so blessed by his confession that I scooped him right up. I went out to the backyard, I, I fixed the hammock, and then I embraced him in it. And we rocked back and forth right there in our own little piece of paradise. I was just so proud of my boy for confessing something. He didn't know that I was gonna make right exactly what he had made wrong. And that it was well within my capacity to do so, that my love for him was unabated. I think about our hearts confessing wrongdoing before our heavenly father. I've learned so much about God from being a father myself. If you had an abusive father, the idea of confessing wrongdoing to the father might frighten you. It might open up a wound deep within your soul or from the deep, dark recesses of your past. And you might project onto God the father the wrongdoings of your own earthly father. You might hold the heavenly father responsible for the sins of your earthly father. And so you don't wanna go and confess something to him because you're afraid that he's gonna strike you over this. Or perhaps, perhaps you are under the impression that God didn't really mean the law, that his standard for righteousness is just one big mulligan. It doesn't really matter. You don't understand what grace actually is. You think that God didn't really mean it when he declared the law. And so for you, the idea of confessing something to God may not even sound important because you don't think there really is a pervasive law for which we'll give an account one day. Or, Or this is really prevalent in our culture today. You think that you're so virtuous and you're basically a good enough person that not only are you not afraid to confess anything before God, you don't think that you have to. In fact, you can't wait to stand before God and get credit for all the good things that you've done and maybe even give God some pointers because you think that you could run the universe better. That is pride and that is delusion. And I pray the Holy Spirit convicts us for that. I pray that all of us, like little Ace, would go before our Father confess what we've done wrong, watch him make all of it right, and then rest in his embrace and his unconditional love in paradise forever. Today is the day my skeptical friend, or my friend who's been running in sin, far from God, enjoying your sin, I pray that you would come and confess before the Father and be made right. The original readers of the book of Romans 
largely a Jewish audience would immediately have some questions at the end of chapter three. Chapter three closes with this universal teaching that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but might be justified freely by God's grace. And we don't abolish the law, but we uphold the law. The original Jewish readers would have immediately butted in and asked the question, okay, so what was the deal with Abraham then? They were under the impression that Abraham was righteous and perfect. If we could all just be justified freely by God's grace, what was the point of the covenant with Abraham? What was God doing there? Paul, the apostle, the author of Romans, writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is about to explain exactly that. This text takes a sledgehammer to the original reader's notion of a perfect Abraham who is justified by his works of the law. It takes a sledgehammer to our own self-righteousness and to our own sense of legalism. If you've been operating under the impression that you could earn your way to heaven, that you're good enough to get there on your own, this is gonna take a sledgehammer to that, especially if you're a skeptic. If you're you're a Christian already, but you've been operating under some sort of self-imposed merit badge system with God, you're gonna see that obliterated. If you've been putting off doing the ministry you know you should do, sitting there in a quarantine, surrounded by your family with the Bible that your church gave you, refusing to actually lead your family in Bible study, dad, You're gonna have this text take you to task over that by bringing your eyes face to face with just what God thinks of you, just how God views your sin, that God would look upon you and credit to you the righteousness of Jesus and never charge you with the sins that you've committed if you are in Christ. Look at Romans chapter four with me. What then will we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. But to the one who does not work, but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. All right, now these next few verses, I'm gonna say the word circumcised like a hundred times. It's gonna be awkward. Here's what we mean. Circumcised means a Jew adhering to Old Testament law. Uncircumcised means a Gentile, somebody from another faith, another ethnicity, another nationality, somebody who didn't know about God in the Old Testament, but now can be saved. Here's verse nine. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? It was not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe but are not circumcised so that the righteousness may be credited to them also. And he became the father of the circumcised who were not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham he had while he was still uncircumcised. This takes a sledgehammer to the notion that Abraham was perfect. And this was shocking to the original readers 
to come to see that there was once a time when Abraham was not circumcised. There was once a time when he was not essentially Jewish and that God brought the law about. And he's also the father spiritually of the uncircumcised. Continue in the text. A couple more verses with me. For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. And where there is no law, there is no transgression. Let's go back through this text and let's unpack it because I believe that it's so dense and it's so inspired. It's so perfect that the Lord is gonna wreck us right here in our living rooms. Look at verses one through three. Survey these with me one more time. It speaks about how Abraham was justified by works, but he would have something to boast about, but not before God. Sure, I mean, he carried out the law, but he didn't have anything to brag about, and especially not before God. Isaiah 64, verse six, says that our righteousness, are, are, our righteousness is like a polluted garment before God. If you're under the impression that your conduct has been so good, and you've been like a little gold star straight A student of the month that you think you could go before God and impress him with your works of righteousness, you're like your cat when he brings you a present at the doormat and it's your neighbor's parakeet and the animal thinks that they've done something good. No, no, that's what God thinks of your acts of righteousness. The most righteous thing we could do is still sinful. You can't, you cannot offset a lifetime of sin by a few good deeds. Even the fact that you could do that is itself, is itself demonstrative of our lack of understanding of just how innate and deep our sin goes. Now, we live in a culture wherein somebody could commit manslaughter and then be sentenced to community service in addition to other penalties. And we, we have this pervasive notion that, okay, you did this bad thing and now if you do some good things, you can offset it and eventually you'll fulfill your sentence and you'll be good. And so we might even be aware of our own sinful past. And so we'll try to virtue signal and virtue signal and virtue signal and put out this impression like, I'm a good person. I'm morally upright. I believe the right things. But no amount of virtue signaling is gonna offset the fact that you're dead inside. No amount of good that you could ever do would offset or undo the wrong that you've done. I don't care how many banana peels you pick up off the side of the road, you're not going to bring back to life the family's teenage daughter that you killed in your act of manslaughter, for example. We live in a culture that tries to offset the wrong we've done by doing good instead. We try to cover up the fact that we're innately depraved by putting on a good face, and championing the cause du jour that the media puts out in front of us. You can't, you cannot boast before God about your own righteousness. If Abraham couldn't, we certainly can't either. Verses one through three are a gut check. Genesis 15, six is what's quoted here. That it was credited to Abraham for righteousness because he believed God. Now that word credited in the original Hebrew of Genesis 15, 6, and as well as in the Greek word that's translated to believe and credited here, both of these, the Hebrew word and the Greek word, within their definitions include the word think. It's as if to say, this is what God thinks of you. When I was in college, I struggled with 
God's love for me. I would stumble, I would sin, and I would think that like God was just fed up with me. And I came under the lie that God had just written me off and God was just tired of me. I would open up, I would open up my prayers with like apologies. God, I'm sorry, I know you're tired of hearing from me, but it's me again. I just need something, I promise. I'll just pray this and be done. And I struggled with, I struggled with the idea that God just loved me. I, I thought of myself like I was once this promising star athlete, but then he blew out his knee. And so his whole career was just, was just bankrupt. And you know, he's only 20 years old, but he's gonna be just limping through life. A has been, a could have been. Spiritually, this is what I thought of myself as. And it took some of my, actually some of my charismatic friends just speaking into me. Do you know who you are? You are his, you are his son. You're his child. He didn't love you because of your good conduct before. He didn't love you because of the potential that you had. He loves you because you're his child. He spoke life into me and changed the way that I saw myself before God, changed the way that I prayed. I'm so grateful for the love of God. It's not merit-based. You can't brag about your righteousness before God. Some of this was to dispel a mythology that had spun. In the original context, some of this was to dispel a mythology that had spun around Abraham. He believed God, and so it was credited to him for righteousness, that God looks upon you and thinks of you as righteous. That's what God thinks of you, Christian, that you would be credited with the righteousness of God. Now, the word credited immediately evokes the thought of a heavenly ledger, doesn't it? Now, if we think in those terms, we might think about having our sin debt forgiven as though we are brought from a place of uh, debt of a million dollars. We have taken the credit card to the mall and we've charged a million bucks for it. And now we're proud of ourselves for the 50 cent payments we're making toward it. All right, that's what virtue signaling is. That's what legalism is. That's our own little merit badges we give ourselves. But what being credited with the righteousness of Jesus in God's eyes means is that not only is your debt paid, but you've also inherited a billion dollars. It means that not only are you brought back to a net zero, you're not just neutral, you are credited as righteous before God. It's not just that the penalty has been paid, it's that you are a child of God, that you are adopted in, not just that your debt is pardoned. You are better than pardoned, Christian. You are more than just pardoned for the wrong you've done. You are credited with righteousness that you didn't achieve. What grace upon grace upon grace. More than just forgiven, you are credited with righteousness. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Some of us might fall under the lie that this doesn't really apply to us. I'm not really all that bad. I mean, that might fall under the same kind of mythology that the original recipients had spun around Abraham. And they, they thought of him the way that some North Koreans think of their dictator or the way that some Catholics think of the Pope. Right, here's 1 John 1, beginning in verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Sorry, I know that that verse just totally obliterated the notion of papal infallibility, but let it more importantly blow up your own sense of self-righteousness 
right? The Pope has sin. You and I have sin. Even Abraham had sin. Abraham would sell his wife out if it meant getting him off the hook. He did it, literally. Read Genesis. All of us have sinned, but God would look upon us and impute us with the righteousness of Jesus if we confess our sins. Now, in verse four, something changes. Now, to the one who works, pay is not credited as a gift, but as something owed. Meaning because you've worked for it, your righteousness is then earned. But this is a gift. It's not a salary. It's not something that you are owed. It is something that God gives freely. So that God would then declare the ungodly to be righteous. And so our faith then is credited for righteousness. Paul's gonna take the writing of David from Psalm 32, and he's going to leverage that against Abraham. And so the original readers would have their bubbles burst about Abraham. David committed adultery with Bathsheba and then covered up his adultery with murder. And then he's confronted by the prophet and he confesses. And two of what we call the penitential Psalms that he writes are Psalm 51 and then this Psalm that's quoted in the text, Psalm 32. So for David to confess sin freely and openly after having committed murder and adultery and for David to be on the same terms as God with Abraham was revelatory for the original Jewish readers. It totally took the overly inflated legacy of Abraham down several notches. The original interpretation was to take Genesis 26, five in which God was affirming to Isaac the covenant that he had with his father Abraham and say, okay, look, Abraham obeyed God and was considered righteous. Therefore, Abraham obeyed the law perfectly. No, Paul here is showing that Abraham, just like David, was just pardoned for his sin and never charged for them. Okay, here's, here's verse six. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the person to whom God credits righteousness apart from works, blessed are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the person the Lord will never charge with sin. Man, I don't care who's in your living room with you. Raise your hand if God's never gonna charge you with sin because you've confessed before the Lord Jesus that he is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Isn't that good news? You will never be charged. Now, Christians, this ought to influence the way we interact with each other. Okay, if you, in a relationship with another Christian, especially to the married couples in the living room side by side together right now, if your spouse has confessed that sin before God, according to my Bible, they're never gonna be charged with that sin before God. So you shouldn't charge them with it. Don't hold your fellow Christian's feet to the fires that he's already walked through. He's already confessed that before God. And he's never gonna be charged with it. So you should not charge other Christians with the sins they've already freely confessed. Let God deal with them as they confess. God has chosen not to charge them for their sins. You focus on your own sins, Christian. You forgive absolutely because you have been absolutely forgiven. God's not gonna hold them to the fire for their sin in eternity. So you don't hold them to it now. You need to look to others with the same forgiveness with which God looks toward you. Praise God, the Christian is never charged with his own sin. Do you see the word blessed come up in three different points here? In verses six, seven, and eight. In verse six, it's the Greek word blessing makarios. That's the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter five in the Beatitudes, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
Now he quotes, he quotes Psalm 32 in verses seven and eight as a Hebrew word, esher, but all these mean blessed. The Greek word makarios for blessed and also the Hebrew word esher for blessed all denote an irrevocably, incontrovertibly content state in the Lord regardless of circumstance. Indestructible joy, regardless of what comes, regardless of what quarantine orders, regardless of what diagnoses we receive, we are blessed in the Lord. The name Makarios, so my friend uh, and former colleague at Lifeway, Daniel M., a church planter and author, named his son. Now, Daniel, Daniel is Korean, and he says when you'd look at his name, Makarios, written down, you'd think that he would be Greek, but then you see, yeah, actually, he's quite Korean. And then my son, Asher, if you look at my kids' middle names, you'd think that we were a Jewish family. And you'd look at Asher, and you'd, especially if you saw him as a baby, you'd, you'd say, that is a blessed baby. Here is, here is Asher the Basher as you know and love him. Okay, here's Asher the Basher on a seesaw. But here is blessed indeed Asher when he was a baby. Look at these chunky cheeks. Blessed. <laughs> blessed indeed whether it is Makarios, whether it is Esther, whether it is Hebrew or Greek, the word means the same thing, blessed, irrevocably, incontrovertibly blessed of God, regardless of circumstance. Now look at verse nine. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? This whole passage, verses nine through 12 really burst people's bubbles. It put into the Jewish reader's mind a novel notion that there was once a time when Abraham was effectively not actually Jewish, but God was bringing about the law through him and not just for Abraham, but for all who would believe one day. Look at at Galatians chapter three, beginning in verse 17. My point is this, the law, which came 430 years later, does not invalidate a covenant previously established by God and thus cancel the promise. For if the inheritance is based on the law, it is no longer based on the promise, but God has graciously given it to Abraham through the promise. In Galatians, God is showing how this law through Abraham, this law through the Old Testament was written with New Testament grace in mind. Righteousness in the Old Testament was designed with righteousness in the New Testament in mind. And this brings us to the the final two verses of the text. This teaching about the law to which we're all held responsible should bring conviction for the promise to Abraham or to, his, uh, or to his descendants that he would inherit the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. If those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made empty and the promise nullified because the law produces wrath. Where there is a law, there is transgression. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. How many of you have driven down an unfamiliar street, you turn down a certain road and you haven't seen a speed limit sign just yet. And so you you begin to think to yourself, okay, what is the speed limit here? What does it feel like? This This looks like a 35, this looks like a 45 area. I see a mailbox with a pink poodle on it and they they wouldn't usually, usually you, you don't put a speed limit of 55 on like pink, poodle mailbox driveway streets. So maybe, maybe it's 35 here. And why is that? It's because you're imagining the scenario in which you would be face to face with a police officer who pulls you over and gives you a ticket. And if you, if you try to explain to him, I didn't see the speed limit sign. I didn't know what the law was. 
You and I both know ignorance of the law does not absolve you of the consequences you suffer when you violate that law. In Romans chapter two, we saw this. The Jewish people knew the law to the letter. They had received the revealed law of God. They had been given the 10 commandments. Gentiles, however, did not yet receive the letter of the law, but by their consciences written on their hearts, they intuitively, like you and I do, turning down an unfamiliar street, know that the law is pervasive and present and authoritative, and we're culpable unto God for it. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. We have a pervasive law, and we've all fallen short of it. I don't have a picture of myself with Ace in the hammock, but I do have a picture of Ace in the hammock with my bride. Look at this, isn't this precious? Little baby Ace with my bride in the hammock. He loves that hammock. He was so afraid he wouldn't get to enjoy it with me anymore. And I was so blessed to just embrace him in it. Now the hammock in my backyard next to the grill falls pathetically short of how amazing the true paradise of heaven actually will be, my friend. Would you come before the father? Would you confess sin? And would you abide in his atoning grace for you? Would you be credited with righteousness before God because of your belief in Jesus, not because of works? You have no reason to boast before God. You and I have no reason to boast before God. Let's not wait until we feel like we are forgiven. God has credited you this with righteousness. Don't wait fathers and parents to lead your family in Bible study until you feel particularly righteous. You have been credited with the righteousness of Jesus, so act like it. You have been called according to the gospel of Jesus Christ and atoned for by works of grace, by Jesus, not by your own adherence to the law. So act like it. Get rid of the merit badge system you've imposed upon yourself. You're not a scout. You're a Christian. You're a child of God. Now, if you are a skeptic, if you're far from God, would you confess freely and openly your sin before him? Would you be credited with the righteousness of Jesus just like this beautiful text promises? I pray that you would see the beautiful message of the gospel hope that's here. You can't earn heaven on your own. You can't boast in your own works of righteousness by the law. Even Abraham was credited with righteousness because of his belief in God. So would you believe in the exact same God right here and now? Where there is no law, there is no transgression. We do have the law of God and every one of us has transgressed. So would you confess it before him today? Would you accept the father's embrace around you? And would you, grateful for his atoning work, invite others into that same grace today. If the Holy Spirit of God has erupted through your screen to grip you by the soul, to draw you into this atoning work, and regardless of your own experience with your own, your own earthly father, would you confess right now before the heavenly father your need for his atoning grace, for his righteousness to be credited toward you? And would you pray with me these verses. If you're a member of Highlands Community Church, you know these verses. They are John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him would not die but have everlasting life. And Romans 3, 23, we, we studied last week that every one of us has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then confess Romans 6, 23, that the wages of our sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. 
Jesus alone is the only one who saves us. It's John 14, 6 that we pray next. Jesus himself said that he is the way and the truth and the life and no one comes to the Father except through Jesus. So filled with the Holy Spirit of God right there. Let the neighbors hear it. 1 Corinthians 12 says you can only say this if you're filled with the Holy Spirit of God. So be filled with the Spirit and confess out loud that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and be saved, be saved, be saved. Pray with me right now. Welcome to the family. God, I believe that you love the world so much that you gave your one and only son that if I would believe in him, I would not die but have everlasting life. I confess, God, that I have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I confess, God, that the wages of my sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. I believe you, Jesus, that you are the way and the truth and the life. And there's no way I can come to you, Father, except through Jesus. So right here and now, filled with the Holy Spirit of God, I confess with my mouth, Jesus, Jesus is Lord. Highlands Community Church, would you say Jesus is Lord? Say it. Jesus is Lord. I believe in my heart that God raised Jesus from the dead. Now, God, let me be saved. Let me be saved. Let me be saved. Credit me with righteousness, God. It's in your name I pray.